And we're just considering two sources of non-rival energy, clean energy curtailment in China and vented and flared gas in the U.S. There are many other sources of stranded and non-rival energy globally. Suffice to say, there's enough non-rival energy out there to run Bitcoin many times over. It's just a matter of deploying hash rate in the right locations, which miners are doing aggressively. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible, the place where you will receive your PhD in Bitcoin studies. I am your host, Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we are getting into, as uh, previewed last week, uh, we're getting into Nick Carter's article today, another of his great pieces on the energy debate around Bitcoin. And this one is actually more more mining focused actually rather than just the environmental cost or anything which is usually the the core concern here um but this is a counter to noah smith's bloomberg article titled bitcoin miners are on a path to self-destruction um and uh nick writes his response here in this article no objectivity on bitcoin mining and no objectivity is spelled like Noah, N-O-A-H, objectivity. <laughs> uh, so dropping a little bit of a dad pun there on Noah's name, which Noah actually commends in his rebuttal. Um, but uh, we are about to get into it. It's a really great article. But first, a thank you to Shift Crypto and their open source, secure, easy to use, and sleek AF hardware wallet, the Bitbox O2. I have the Bitcoin-only version because smaller attack surfaces mean more secure. It is your cold storage solution, and they have tons of other great backup and security options on the store. Discount code GUY, G-U-Y, gets you 5% off. And, of course, our other amazing sponsor, Swan Bitcoin, and that's swanlikethebird.com slash guy for some free sats when you start your automatic no hassle, set it and forget it, recurring Bitcoin savings plan. Drop that garbage 401k and start automatically contributing to your Bitcoin savings with swanbitcoin.com slash guy. All right, thanks to our sponsors. But without further ado, let's get into today's read by Nick Carter, and it's titled No Objectivity on Bitcoin Mining, a response to Noah Smith by Nick Carter. The Bloomberg columnist Noah Smith has a lot of thoughts on Bitcoin. Some of them are really solid and engage with the reality of the protocol itself, which is rare for a member of the mainstream media circuit. He also discloses that he owns Bitcoin, which is impressive for an economist and a member of the establishment so I'm pretty happy with him overall. I don't want this piece to be interpreted as a blank critique of Noah's stance on Bitcoin. However, Noah's recent column in Bloomberg, Bitcoin Miners on a Path to Self-Destruction, makes a few claims that warrant a response. 
Noah's basic premise is that Bitcoin miners are effectively hogging the grid in the various places where they operate and risk getting banned entirely. Not only is the notion of a global coordinated ban on mining far-fetched, but Noah relies on a few claims that are dubious at best. Let's investigate. Claim. Bitcoin is unique in that a rising price entails more energy draw. Noah starts by noting that because miners are rewarded partly through new issuance, increasing unit prices means more real-world resources that are put into mining. That part is true, but the rest of the quote isn't quite fair. Quote, But Bitcoin's high price may now be leading to new problems for the cryptocurrency, because unlike other financial assets, Bitcoin uses more resources as its prices go up. So the more Bitcoin's price goes up, the more resources it consumes. End quote. Bitcoin's most obvious real-world analog is, of course, gold. Gold has this exact same property, so it doesn't make sense to single out Bitcoin here. When the unit price of gold goes up, gold mining increases, sometimes with a lag, and hence so does its energy consumption. This is because mines are heterogeneous in their profitability thresholds, and some are only profitable at higher prices. You can see this phenomenon clearly on this chart, courtesy of Arcadius Siren at Sunshine Profits. As the price of gold increases, it drives up production with a lag. This is similar to Bitcoin price and hash rate dynamics. You can see the lagged relationship between hash rate and BTC price here from Coinmetrics. This is an incidental point, so we won't dwell on it. But it was worth mentioning that Bitcoin isn't the only commodity to feature this additional energy draw as unit prices rise. Claim. Bitcoin, quote, hogs local power resources. Quote. But Bitcoin undoubtedly hogs local power resources, which makes other customers mad. Bitcoin miners are trying to fix this tendency of the network to hog local power by making use of the excess solar and wind power produced during peak hours, but it remains to be seen how much of this extra energy is just lying around. End quote. Well, let's see, shall we? Best not to keep Noah in the dark. As it turns out, there's a tremendous amount of stranded energy floating around. Skip to the end of this section if you just want the numbers. This includes both on-grid energy that power grids cannot accommodate for various reasons, like mismatches between production and demand, and off-grid potential energy that simply has no chance of ever making it to the grid. I call this category of energy non-rival energy, because its use doesn't deprive anyone anywhere of energy, nor does it drive up their costs. In fact, monetizing surplus energy could actually drive down grid costs, because it sponsors the build-out of otherwise unprofitable energy infrastructure. Now, precisely how much non-rival energy is being employed to mine Bitcoin today is an interesting and challenging question to which I don't have the answer. Ultimately, the Earth is being bombarded by sunlight, which is itself a constant source of stranded or unexploited energy, as well as the wind eddies that ultimately derive from that same hot ball of gas. But wind and solar in their current form aren't particularly amenable to mining Bitcoin because they generally have low capacity factors. 
If you buy ASICs and put them to work mining with wind and solar, you will only be running them roughly half the time, because the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. However, to make money mining Bitcoin, you only have a finite amount of time in which to do so with a given ASIC, because chips generally get better, and so you have to depreciate ASICs over time. ASICs eventually get priced out because they simply aren't efficient enough to keep up with the rising hash rate. So they have a finite, useful lifetime, during which you want to run them as much as possible. Mining Bitcoin exclusively on solar or wind isn't going to be competitive. What Bitcoin can do, however, is absorb structural surpluses of energy. The best data we have comes from the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, which ingested data from Bitcoin mining pools to geolocate mining and create an energy consumption index, CBECI. According to the CBECI, roughly 71% of mining took place in China from quarter four 2019 to the second quarter 2020. They don't offer more recent data. Within China, there's four standout provinces where the vast majority of mining occurs. Xinjiang, Sichuan, Inner Mongolia, and Yunnan. Collectively, they produced 63% of the global Bitcoin hash rate during the period in question, according to the CBECI. Those provinces can be grouped into two categories. Coal-rich, with significant contribution from renewables like wind and solar, or hydro-rich. Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia are heavily coal-powered, but their grids are also 35 and 30% wind-solar respectively, according to Bloomberg. By contrast, the U.S. grid was only 20% renewable, inclusive of hydro, in 2020 when measured by generation, according to the Energy Information Administration. So if Bitcoin was mined exclusively in Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia, it would still be more renewable in origin than if it was mined with the average energy mix of the U.S. Interesting. What all of these regions have in common is a relatively low population density. Collectively, they only host 12.7% of the population of China, but they have abundant energy resources. It's not a coincidence that Chinese Bitcoin mining mostly happens in these four provinces. They have a massive overabundance of energy and a general inability to direct it to population centers. Look at the below map courtesy of Bloomberg and see if you can spot the pattern. Chart. This is definitely one to be seen, but it basically shows a map of China with every province labeled and the available energy capacity of each one of them next to the peak demand for energy within that province. The four largest differences, where capacity vastly outweighs even the peak demand, are clearly Xinjiang, Inner Mongolia, which is actually almost four times greater capacity than peak demand, Yunnan, and Sichuan. In chart. If it wasn't clear enough, here's another chart showing how renewable or hydro-rich the various provinces in China are compared to the actual population centers. I've put stars on the four provinces in question. They're nowhere near the actual load centers. It's very clear that Bitcoin miners didn't just choose these locations at random. Xinjiang and Inner Mongolia have tons of available capacity, including from wind and solar, 
and little grid demand to mop it up. This chart from Lu Tongzheng at the Lantau Group makes the energy abundance of these two provinces very clear. Inner Mongolia and Xinjiang being the example. Don't forget to check out the actual article, link in the show notes, to see the data corresponding to these. For a visual guide to the excess of wind and solar resources in China, see below. Sichuan and Yunnan have oodles of hydro and are similarly distant from population centers. This map from Shen et al. 2019 grades the provinces by hydro capacity. During the wet season, there is simply too much water flowing through these regions into dams for the grid to consume, and it has to be let out. You can explicitly see the seasonal curtailment on this chart of Yunnan's hydro resources on the chart below. Now, this chart is really interesting, and I encourage you to look at this one because it actually shows the amount of energy generated and with obvious, obvious seasonal spikes, but then also the amount of curtailment of energy produced as the top of the bar. And Nick is about to explain what's important here. Note that the curtailment rates declined in 2017 and 2018 because Bitcoin mining began to ramp up in Yunnan with the rally. So you can start to see its effect on the energy excess. While it's hard to get exact numbers, it's fair to assume that Bitcoin is being mined in large part with non-rival energy in these key provinces. It's not depriving anyone of energy, because energy is wildly overabundant. And when the authorities get sick of Bitcoin, as with Inner Mongolia, it's a net good for the Bitcoin network, since that means less Bitcoin is being mined with coal. Inner Mongolia is slightly worse than Xinjiang as far as the energy mix is concerned. The ban also has the side effect of reducing China's leverage as it pertains to Bitcoin. If they were planning a sneak attack on Bitcoin, banning mining is the opposite of what you'd expect from the CCP. But the Bitcoin mining story is increasingly being written outside of China. As Mustafa Yilham of the industrial miner Bixen noted on a recent podcast appearance, most recent buyers of mining hardware are ex-China. There's a huge market for mining machines in the U.S. as Galaxy Digital and Digital Currency Group have established large mining units alongside a vibrant set of publicly traded miners, which have raised significant capital in recent months. Mustafa's comments are worth reading carefully. Based on our conversation with uh, different mining manufacturers, um, on average, right, like around 60% of the mining machine sale in past two quarters or so have been outside of China uh, in recent months and mostly actually in North America. And I think that there's a few factors that plays into why North America could be huge in mining in the in, in, in future. Uh, one of them is price. Um, I think you'll be surprised to hear that, in fact, the price right now in North America in nowadays are cheaper than the average price in China. Um, and in the past, we used to think, you know, U.S. have high labor costs, less mining ecosystem. And but we can clearly feel that things are changing rapidly within the past one to two years. Um, and I think during the next cycle, you will see a much higher involvement from U.S. and other country 
um, in, into mining. And I think the most important factor also for U.S. miner is that they have access to cheap capital cost, meaning, um, you know, they have the ability to go out there and, you know, basically borrow um, at, a, at a much cheaper rate than Chinese uh, miners are able to. So what will these ex-China miners mine with? Some will use grid power, but others will pursue renewable strategies. Many of the announcements you will see regarding Bitcoin mining will follow Square's lead with their Bitcoin Clean Energy Investment Initiative, or ACRES CT initiative, which has vowed to mine with renewables. Increasingly prevalent is the notion of pipe to crypto. This process entails the off-grid mining of Bitcoin with methane, a natural byproduct of oil extraction. Depending on the regulatory framework, natural gas is either vented or flared at rig locations. Because these oil wells are frequently remote, off-grid with no pipeline infrastructure and unviable economics for capturing due to low prices of natural gas, oil rig operators often combust waste gas on site. However, flaring tends to be very inefficient, and on windy days, large fractions of the methane just bubble out. Methane is a worse greenhouse gas than CO2, the output of combusted methane, so flaring is a net positive. When this gas is put into a generator and used to mine Bitcoin, Operators can ensure a full burn, eliminating vented methane from inefficient flaring and can additionally mitigate the emissions produced. Given the baseline situation for venting and flaring, a clean, supervised burn in a generator is a net positive from a carbon perspective. A number of firms are now pursuing this opportunity, some of them partnering with publicly traded energy companies. It goes without saying that completely off-grid natural gas is entirely non-rival with household or commercial energy consumption. It was never going to be monetized, captured, consumed, or delivered to households. Its fate was simply to be combusted or vented. The scale of flared gas is massive. In the U.S. in 2019, according to the Energy Information Administration, 538 billion cubic feet of natural gas were vented and flared. That's 1.2% of the total gas withdrawn from the Earth in the U.S. in 2019. And according to energy analyst Brandon McBee, whom I consulted for this article, that number is likely a vast underestimate. In McBee's words, quote, this is the official number reported from the Energy Information Administration. This value is collected by self-reporting in state mandates across the U.S. However, it is well known in the industry that the true gas venting and flaring value is substantially higher. Pipeline leakage, initial production grace periods, legacy wells with poor infrastructure all contribute to estimates that reach nearly 10 times higher than what is reported to the EIA. So with these case studies in mind, let's consider some numbers on curtailment. First, let's contextualize. Digiconomist pegs Bitcoin's current annualized energy consumption at 89 terawatt hours per year, while Cambridge estimates it at 138 terawatt hours. 
so let's assume the answer is somewhere in between. The numbers on curtailment are absolutely massive, and it's easy to come up with figures that exceed the consumption of the Bitcoin network. This is because the world produces far more energy than it consumes, and it has the capacity to produce far more through unexploited sources that go to waste, like flared methane. Here are some figures to give you a sense of the scale of curtailment that goes on. I can't get comprehensive data on global energy curtailment or stranded energy sources, but the numbers below should provide you ample assurances that Bitcoin can run exclusively on non-rival energy. In 2016, China curtailed 40.7 terawatt hours worth of wind and 11.7 terawatt hours of solar power alone. Zhao and Lu, 2017, and Lu et al., 2018. In 2016, Yunnan alone curtailed 31.4 terawatt hours worth of hydropower. In 2016 and 17, China curtailed 100 terawatt hours on average worth of hydro, solar, and wind energy collectively. The very conservative estimate of 558 BCF flared vented natural gas in the U.S., if put to use in 7 heat rate or 7 million BTU per megawatt hour combined cycle plants, would have generated 76.9 terawatt hours in 2019. And we are just considering two sources of non-rival energy clean energy curtailment in China, and vented flared gas in the U.S. There are many other sources of stranded and non-rival energy sources globally. Suffice to say, there's enough non-rival energy out there to run Bitcoin many times over. It's just a matter of deploying hash rate in the right locations, which miners are doing aggressively. Claim Bitcoin is hogging space at chip foundries, interfering with global manufacturing. All right, let's take a quick break and hit our sponsor, and we'll jump back in on this claim. You know, mining is hard. It's a constant struggle. You have to invest in hardware. There's constant competition, the difficulty adjustment. Margins are skyrocketing and then plummeting. And their goal is just to get Bitcoin. You know what they could do instead? They could set up an automatic savings plan with Swan Bitcoin. Instead of worrying about their hardware, is it going to return Bitcoin? They could just buy it every day, every week, recurring automatically with the lowest fees in the recurring purchase biz. They got, instead, they got to do all this maintenance and they got to hunt for low energy costs. Swan Bitcoin is maintenance free. Set it up once and it just runs. You'll stack during the dips, you'll stack during the spikes, while you're surfing, while you're sleeping, always. And best of all, you can set it up to automatically withdraw directly to your keys. But wait, there's more. Use my referral, swanbitcoin.com guy, and get $5 worth of sats free when you start your plan, and that's like a billion future dollars. It's an easy, no-hassle way to stack Bitcoin. SwanBitcoin.com slash guy. Claim. Bitcoin is hogging space at chip foundries, 
interfering with global manufacturing. Noah asserts the following, quote, Meanwhile, Bitcoin's demand for computer chips has hogged the production lines at Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and Samsung Electronics Company, contributing to a global chip shortage that is costing automakers tens of billions of dollars and threatening the phone industry as well. This is actually the easiest claim to dispute because it relies on sources which aren't talking about Bitcoin at all. If you trace the sources Noah relies on, he links a Fast Company article which says the following, quote, But the straw that finally broke the proverbial camel's back was the sharp rise in Bitcoin prices in early 2021. This increased the demand for the graphics processing units that are traditionally used in mining the digital currency, exacerbating the semiconductor supply issues further. Immediate red flag with graphics processing units. Everyone knows Bitcoin isn't mined with GPUs. If you trace that article to its source, you land at an SCMP article which discusses a GPU shortage worsened by high cryptocurrency prices. As anyone with passing familiarity of Bitcoin should know, you haven't been able to GPU mine Bitcoin since 2013. Bitcoin mining relies on specialized hardware using ASICs. It's mainly Ethereum's price resurgence which is driving the GPU shortage. Because Ethereum miners mostly use high-end NVIDIAs, an increase in Ethereum usage, and hence fees in the price of ETH, absolutely increases demand for GPUs and prices out gamers. Gamers, and I suppose some opinion columnists too, sometimes erroneously deride Bitcoin for their expensive gaming rigs, but it's Ethereum that should be the target of their ire. Interestingly, NVIDIA is aware of this problem and has built a crypto-specific GPU while building in anti-mining mechanisms in their mainstream GPUs. The general-purpose GPUs will throttle usage if they detect crypto mining activity. This is a very smart way to segregate their product lines across different customer segments and solves the problem of miners pricing out gamers and other GPU consumers. I don't exactly blame Noah here because it's Fast Company which is making a mistake by attributing the Bitcoin price rise to a GPU shortage. So let's give Noah the benefit of the doubt and tackle the more general claim that demand for Bitcoin chips and not GPUs is interfering with crucial points in the smartphone and vehicle supply chains. This claim is also wide of the mark, but in a much more interesting and revealing way. I don't personally know much about the semiconductor market, but I know a number of analysts that cover semiconductors at large hedge funds. So I dialed one of my friends who is an expert on semiconductors and he agreed to speak with me in the background. I'll refer to him as Big Al, his chosen pseudonym. As it turns out, the way foundries like TSMC, the foundry Bitmain relies on, operate is that they tier their customers. They don't optimize just for revenue, but consistent demand. They treat their tier one customers much better and give them privileged allocations to foundry space. Bitmain, the largest ASIC manufacturer, is not a tier one customer. They have to settle for scraps. According to Big Al, 
The chip shortages are mainly due to a skyrocketing demand for consumer electronics and cloud during COVID, as everyone was stuck at home with nothing to do. Additionally, Qualcomm's issues, the major smartphone chip manufacturer, were compounded by a shutdown at Samsung's Austin plant during the recent power cuts there where Qualcomm sources RF chips. The way it works is that reliable Tier 1 customers are prioritized for allocations, while more cyclical and less predictable buyers like Bitmain have to wait. In Q3 and Q4 2020, TSMC was absolutely jammed with orders from their Tier 1 clients, Apple, Qualcomm, NVIDIA, and Broadcom, to name a few. This was an active time for smartphone manufacturers due to Christmas and Lunar New Year shopping, the launch and rollout of 5G and phones, and Oppo, Vivo, and Xiaomi making a market share play due to the political pressures hurting Yahweh. Crypto miners would not have had much allocation. Crypto miners, after being stonewalled in the second half of 2020, got their allocations in quarter one and quarter two 2021 to manufacture their new five nanometer chips. Given that Bitcoin ASICs don't have to perform to the tolerances that smartphones do, ASICs are more disposable and are expected to depreciate more quickly, foundries are happy to give lower quality chips to miners, and the miners happily pay for them. In fact, to get foundry space, miners pay a premium, which has the effect of subsidizing the build-out of new infrastructure at the 5 nanometer level. So the Bitcoin hardware manufacturers are very much second-class citizens in this incredibly competitive game of bidding for foundry allocation. And that's likely to remain the case for a long while, because the industry is so cyclical. The foundries will likely continue to mistrust Bitcoin hardware manufacturers. When quarter 3 and quarter 4 2021 roll around, Bitcoin ASIC manufacturers will likely find themselves out of luck once again, with foundry capacity extremely scarce. According to Big Al, there's no price at which a Bitcoin miner can outbid a Tier 1 client for allocation. The Tier 1 clients are absolutely privileged. Ultimately, Bitcoin miners represent a small fraction of TSMC revenue, around 1%, according to Bernstein. The notion of a marginal Tier 2 industry being responsible for chip shortages is fanciful. The more immediate cause is the supply inelasticity of foundry space due to gargantuan fixed costs and the massive surge of demand for electronics due to a global lockdown and new technologies coming online. Claim. Proof of stake is a viable alternative. To sum up his piece, Noah says, quote, To avert bans on Bitcoin mining, the developers who control Bitcoin's algorithm need to think about switching to a cheaper technology. One alternative is a proof-of-stake system, where mining can only be done by people who already own a lot of the cryptocurrency. This cuts down massively on resource use by limiting competition. This is a cornerstone of the anti-Bitcoin energy argument. The notion that you can have something for nothing with proof-of-stake. No energy consumption, yet still a functioning decentralized consensus. If this logic reminds you of perpetual motion machines, it's because that's exactly what is being proposed here. A completely free lunch where you get precisely the same assurances as Bitcoin 
with no costs whatsoever. Of course, this is fantastical. Proof of stake is just a fancy phrase meaning those who have the most wealth wield political control. That sounds a lot like our current system, which Bitcoin is specifically designed to solve. Bitcoin explicitly rejects politics and doesn't grant any special privileges based on coins held. If holding more coins gave you more control, the attempted takeover of Bitcoin through the 2x movement, backed by the largest custodians and exchanges in the industry, would have succeeded. Additionally, as Paul Sork pointed out way back in 2015, proof of stake is often simply a veiled and obfuscated form of proof of work. If the protocol imposed a limit of $100 worth of a coin per staking note, for instance, in a bid to foment decentralization, you'd see industrial staking farms emerge with tens of thousands of nodes. It would just be a roundabout proof of work. Capital has a cost, and a proof-of-stake system at equilibrium would consume capital in just the same way Bitcoin does. The way this would actually be instrumentalized would be through a carry trade of sorts, borrowing in dollars to take advantage of the high, quote, interest rates offered in, say, Ethereum. Capital that would be allocated to proof-of-stake systems could be used to build nuclear power plants, windmills, or solar farms. Capital is just our abstraction for energy. If a proof-of-stake system consumes $1 trillion of society's capital resources, that entails a lot of potential carbon-sequestering farms gone unbuilt. So if proof-of-stake is just veiled proof-of-work, it provides no marginal benefit. Not only that, it is very unclear if proof-of-stake actually grants equivalent assurances to proof-of-work. In my view, it is unambiguously worse from a decentralization perspective. The cost of capital is profoundly inegalitarian and gives would-be oligarchs the upper hand in consensus. Problematically, large custodians, where coins inevitably end up settling, can easily be employed to take control of proof-of-stake systems. Coinmetrics benchmarks the number of exchange-held ETH at 14.8 million units. Viewbase has it at 22.8 million. That latter figure is worth $37 billion, equivalent to 29.2% of the trailing 12-month active supply on ETH. Those custodians, the largest of which alone holds north of 8 million Ethereum, could interfere with consensus in a proof-of-stake system, as happened with Steemit, where exchange votes were used to change consensus rules and ultimately confiscate coins from certain users. Additionally, in proof-of-stake, we've seen vote-buying and validator cartels. And if you expect a proof-of-stake token to go truly mainstream, the system would end up privileging the entities that have access to the cheapest capital. Large financial institutions that have access to effectively unlimited liquidity from central banks. If you think proof-of-stake empowers the individual, compare the cost of capital for regular folks an obvious proxy would be credit card APRs, to the cost of capital for hedge funds like Citadel. Gigantic, too-big-to-fail institutions get favorable access to liquidity, even when their trades go awry, as happened in 2020. Last year, the Fed also bought corporate debt, vastly empowering large firms. It's no secret that the larger you are and the more proximate to the central bank, 
the cheaper your capital is. So proof of stake crucially lacks the hardness that an energy cost provides and has the negative feature of empowering large firms at the expense of smaller ones. In contrast to fiat currency and credit, energy is much more globally distributed and cannot be conjured from thin air by a central bank. So far, there have been no coalitions or cartels built around mining Bitcoin that have actually imposed systematic censorship. And hash rate only continues to get more distributed. Expect far more U.S.-based and non-China hash rate in the next 12 to 24 months. That's where all the newly minted ASICs are going. China kicking miners out of Inner Mongolia is extremely positive by that rubric. Claim Bitcoin mining bans are bad for miners, investors, and developers. Noah goes on to say that, quote, Bans on Bitcoin mining will be bad for Bitcoin miners, as well as crypto investors and software developers. This is questionable. Yes, a globally coordinated ban on Bitcoin mining would force it underground. I don't expect a global ban. Already, certain jurisdictions encourage Bitcoin mining because they have stranded energy resources that can be monetized through mining. In other words, they can export energy the way Iceland has historically done with aluminum smelting. The world is a big place, and policymakers have diverse reactions to Bitcoin. We have seen Kentucky encourage Bitcoin mining through new tax breaks. It's an open secret that the government of Georgia, the country in the South Caucasus, subsidizes Bitcoin mining. The Pakistani province of Habar Patunkwa is piloting a state-sponsored mining initiative. Some jurisdictions will object to Bitcoin mining in their borders. Others will embrace it. But a ban isn't bad for your average miner. First of all, hash rate is extremely mobile. Miners will just migrate their ASICs as they do seasonally between Sichuan and Yunnan and Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang already. Bitcoin eats energy subsidies for breakfast and ultimately punishes governments like Iran and Venezuela that uneconomically subsidize energy to maintain regime legitimacy. If you dislike the environmental impact of non-renewable subsidies and dislike the authoritarian states that employ them, Bitcoin's subsidy toxicity is a very good thing. Second of all, since miners are in constant competition with all other miners worldwide, crackdowns on specific miners mining at competitive rates rise the per kilowatt hour price threshold at which mining is profitable. If a miner is mining with subsidized energy deriving from coal, giving the miner a below market rate of say two cent per kilowatt hour, and the local authorities take exception to this practice, they can end the subsidy or kick out the miner. That raises the profitability for all other miners worldwide. Investors and developers don't really care about where Bitcoin is mined. As long as Bitcoin hash rate is sufficiently decentralized and its assurances hold up. So far, it has. The important thing is to continue to develop technologies like Stratum V2 and others that continue to empower individual miners at the expense of pools and enhance the genuine decentralization of block formation. At the end of the day, Bitcoin doesn't care where it is mined. 
and Bitcoin doesn't have a defined threshold of hash rate at which it is considered secure. It has been secure at many levels historically. In my opinion, it substantially overpays for security. If states like China take umbrage at Bitcoin's consumption of grid resources, hash rate will flow elsewhere. In the long term, I believe Bitcoin will be mined almost exclusively with non-rival energy, because all on-grid mining is always exposed to the exact political caprice that Inner Mongolia miners are dealing with. As we know, there's ample stranded assets just waiting to be monetized. That couldn't be more positive for Bitcoin. You know, one of the things that kind of surprised me in this article that I kind of had a vague idea of, but I just didn't, I didn't fully understand was the sheer amount of stranded and non-rival energy sources. And I really want to come back to that point in just a minute. But uh, in the show notes, though, I'll link to the original article from Noah if you want to kind of dive into that one. Uh, though really, Nick kind of hits the basic ideas, and they're pretty simple. Um, uh, so it might not, be, might not be totally necessary, but obviously I'll have the link to this article as well from Nick Carter. And then I will link to Noah's rebuttal, which I don't think Nick really needs to address honestly, um, but uh, I would encourage you to go read it. It's short. Um, mostly because, though, I think Noah kind of discounts a few of his own arguments in the piece without realizing he does. And then there's also what, what I think is some additional kind of vague ignorance of Bitcoin's nature in it as well, uh, which I want to address. So I, I'm going to add a little bit to this. Rather than uh, repeating my own thoughts about Nick's article, I'll maybe address some of Noah's rebuttal. But you can find all of this in the show notes um, if you want to kind of get at the source of the discussion rather than Nick's and my own simplification of the argument. You know, I'd read them all on the show if I had the time. But um, uh, I will say one thing that Noah is pretty nice in his rebuttal and clarifies that he actually supports and holds Bitcoin um, and kind of makes a funny comment that uh, a ton of people who uh, made puns about his name were incredibly mentally lazy about it like Noah Brain, as if the ah, the A-H didn't exist, and that he commends Nick on no objectivity still having the Noah, the A-H, in the, in the pun. But aside from that, I think in his rebuttal, he still doesn't quite get some really crucial factors, at least in my opinion. But to this article and the original piece on Bloomberg, so the main claims addressed... First was that Bitcoin is unique in that a rising price entails more energy draw. Now, I think Nick shows, obviously, that this is the case for almost everything and gold mining being a prime example. Uh, but in the rebuttal, Noah comes back and says that it's more about storage cost, as he puts it. And this is the ongoing cost of the asset, which for something like gold you dig it up once, you coin it, you build a safe or whatever you're doing, and then that's a sunk cost. Other than some maintenance cost and, you know, some guards or whatever, the mining cost is only there for additional gold. But the current stash of gold can be secured without doing anything or, or with a comparatively small cost. Whereas as the value of Bitcoin goes up, 
you have a linear increase in the amount of security and the amount of energy expended to uh, continue moving Bitcoin forward through time. And then he rightfully, he, he correctly um, explains that stocks have, an high, have a high ongoing energy cost where the companies have to keep producing value into the economy in order to sustain a high valuation. But he's kind of missing the circular nature. He does say that for stocks to have a higher valuation doesn't mean that like their costs now go way up or anything. In fact, they don't change, even though they may now direct a lot more resources to their own production and their own competitiveness in the market. So they probably will consume a whole lot more resources. But that's missing the point that it's not necessary, not necessary that they do. They produce more value and then the value of their stock goes up. But what the funny thing is, is he's missing what the value of Bitcoin is, what Bitcoin produces on an ongoing basis. Its value is the integrity of the ownership and settlement of Bitcoin, which means that the consumption of electricity is the productive value that Bitcoin is producing. That is the measure of its assurances going up. So it would be the equivalent Bitcoin's value going up and its electricity consumption going up is the equivalent of the company producing more resource or producing more goods into the economy because the good being sold is settlement assurances, is the absolute validation and proof that you own and uh, cannot be contested some subset of the Bitcoin value. So the additional security costs, the additional energy consumption reinforces the higher valuation and settlement for larger transactions and more value. Like, for example, you'd have to be a complete idiot to try and settle a $2 trillion transaction on Bitcoin, which, you know, obviously couldn't do it in Bitcoin. But still, you could like you could say you settled a transaction and write it into a Bitcoin transaction but you'd be an idiot to do that when Bitcoin was a tiny network, when there was like $1,000 per hour hash rate or energy consumption, because those are incredibly low settlement assurances. So whoever got your $2 trillion in value in exchange for the, the Bitcoin or the proof or whatever it is, they could wait six months at that hash rate. They could wait a year to be certain that the corresponding asset or value was solidly in their possession and then completely undo, reverse the original transaction. They could publish an entirely separate chain for that entire six month or one year history or whatever it is. And it could be identical. They could leave all the transactions, everybody else's stuff exactly as it happened for the next six months or a, uh, to a year and just take out that one transaction that settled that was the token representing that two trillion dollars in value sent to you it cost him like five million dollars to do that and this is where he ha actually has a quote that i think he kind of is missing this point so he, he's maybe he's just being loose with his language but i think he's not quite understanding the real dynamic here uh, but he says quote Mining both creates new Bitcoin and verifies the existing blockchain. Verifying the existing blockchain is the way Bitcoin is stored. So this is how he refers to continuing, continued mining means storing Bitcoin. That's the storage cost of Bitcoin. 
this isn't really accurate. Um, verification and mining, although I know, I think I know what he's getting at. These are entirely distinct things. Verifying the blockchain doesn't take any mining at all. And it does, in fact, secure and store Bitcoin in the past. And verifying happens prior to mining. It does not require mining. The mining is simply useless if you do it for invalid data. So if you don't verify first and you just mine arbitrarily, well, then you're, you're mining for nothing. So maybe he understands this, but the two are closely tied, but they're very, they're still very different things. But mining the next block is not about verifying the history of Bitcoin. It is simply about establishing a, both a forward direction through time that is objectively defined. It is defined by the energy cost to move backwards and produces security for the new entrance for the new locations, for the new addresses where Bitcoin is stored. Yes, it is cumulative for Bitcoins that remain elsewhere on the blockchain that are in the past. But if everybody stopped mining right now, none of the Bitcoin that are currently on in, in addresses are any, any less secure in like a week if there's no mining than they are right now at this moment, at least in the regards to energy cost. Energy is merely needed to continue Bitcoin moving forward. We could stop and it would still be equally hard in a week, a month, six months, whatever the hell it is, to undo the current transactions that are in the blockchain. I mean, it would obviously be bad for all these other reasons, but irrelevant if we're just talking about quote-unquote storage costs, that is not an ongoing cost of past Bitcoin. The ongoing mining cost is new settlement. So just like he makes that caveat for companies producing value, this is exactly what Bitcoin is doing. It is producing ongoing value and additional objective settlement for transactions within the Bitcoin space. It wraps both of these jobs, the mining of new coins, just like in gold mining, and the production of a valuable economic asset, of a, uh, an economic good, like a company, into a single closed loop system. It settles new transactions, validates new owners, and is doing so in an objective way ongoing through for the economy. And it does it without politics or authority, which in comparison, you might as well not be able to compare the two. Bitcoin provides a novel good and service for the digital space, one that his supposed proof of stake or uh, money in a bank or gold in a bank, doesn't even come close to doing. I'm going to come back to that in just a second. I'm going to hit a quote that he uh, has from his article first. He says, quote, That's just not a very efficient storage technology! Exclamation point. Gold has clear economies of scale and storage. You might beef up security a bit if gold's price quadruples, as it did in the 2000s and early 2010s, since thieves might take more of an interest in gold, but probably not too big of a change since you're still guarding the same physical space, end quote. And this is where he doesn't understand the difference. The security and storage of gold for their owners, for its owners, is efficient in this sense because it's fake. It's pretend security. If you have it at someone else's promise and nothing else, 
If you're guarding the same physical space, which he says in this example, you're still guarding the same physical space, it's because none of the owners actually own anything. What Bitcoin does in the equivalent of this analogy is allowing everyone to have their gold shipped directly to them and then building the exact same sized vault around their holdings rather than leaving the average person's funds at the discretion of some bank or government. Or, of course, having them pathetically secured in some equivalent like shoebox or, uh, you know, a small, you know, Walmart safe in, in their house. So if you want to compare the cost to uh, both the ongoing storage of gold and the settlement of gold for true owners, that's the cost to compare it to. How much does it cost to continually move every coin of gold directly into the possession of anyone who ever buys it and then rebuild that same vault around it? Except that Bitcoin is incredibly efficient at this in comparison because it doesn't have to build a new safe for every individual address. It builds one giant safe and copies and pastes it onto every owner in the next block. Gold doesn't get to copy and paste its safe. If it wants to distribute it to every single owner and provide equivalent banking vault security to every single owner, it has to make a new vault every single time. Bitcoin beats it hands down a hundredfold. Boom, your analogy doesn't work because nobody owns that gold. You actually own Bitcoin. And it is explicitly because of how the Bitcoin system settles Bitcoin. None of that gold is settled. It is by permission, period. And this is the very thing that is causing such vast multi-trillion dollar problems all around the world is the permission of money, the political control of money, the corruption and manipulation of prices. So if you want to fix that, that's the inefficiency that we need to fix. And Bitcoin mining doesn't even touch this, considering this is the very problem Bitcoin is immune to. The assurances simply do not compare. One is a fake assurance, but Bitcoin is a real assurance because of that energy cost. And I'm going to get back to exactly what I mean by that for anybody who doesn't really get it. But there's other things to hit first. Okay, so claim Bitcoin hogs local power resources. I think Nick hits this one really well. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, first mining uh, margins are incredibly low. It is only during the spikes or whatever that that even changes. Um, it's far more directed at stranded and non-rival energy sources. And any honest assessment of the broader scope of Bitcoin mining, you can always find outliers. You can always find some one little one-off uh, example of some town that's being invaded by Bitcoin miners and raising the price of energy. But if you look at the overall Bitcoin network, where are we talking about 60%, 70%, 80% huge swaths of the mining? Where does it go? That's where it goes. Like, so anything outside of that, outside of the explicit data that we have, is just a guess or it's just a, this is how it looks in Washington, which he actually gives an example of a, some town in Washington that is having a bunch of miners show up. And his quote, how, how he kind of sums up in the rebuttal, he says, in other words, if we want or expect Bitcoin to maintain 
anything close to its recent meteoric price growth, uh, storage costs, i.e. the energy and chip costs of Bitcoin mining, are going to become a bigger and bigger issue at a correspondingly meteoric pace. Well, I will be the first one to disappoint him. Bitcoin does not always go up. It does in the long term. But in the short term, Bitcoin is crazy. And in his example of where he like points to uh, a couple of different articles, like the Washington example, um, uh, where miners are taking advantage of this huge premium that we are currently seeing, where the price is like 4x the cost of mining at the moment, he's completely missing the fact that this isn't a Bitcoin problem. In fact, Bitcoin itself has the exact solution needed to solve this and simultaneously soak up all of that stranded non-rival energy that he's saying isn't important or is just a stopgap. And it's built into Bitcoin. It's called the difficulty adjustment. That premium doesn't last ever. Like, I mean, we could pretend that Bitcoin's history isn't relative, relevant here, but then we have nothing to base this off of. Now we're just, you know, guessing. Now we're just making stuff up. So if you look at Bitcoin's history, its skyrocketing price is short-lived. It happens in very short, crazy bursts. And then we go into a bear market. Then the price crashes and finds some new level. Equilibrium uh, manages to work itself out and the, all the mining margins disappear. The difficulty adjustment corrects until the price of mining is no longer profitable on, in your typical energy environment. It means that the only times that Bitcoin competes with everyday energy is during these massive sharp bull runs. That's it. After you spend three months, six months at some price threshold, uh, mining capacity, you know, fills out the difference and all the profitability disappears. Anywhere where Bitcoin is being mined on Main Street or taking away energy from you heating your food up, goes, they, they cut them off. They cut them off. They're gone. The average mining margin is tiny. The times that they are in competition is with you know normal energy uh normal or other uses of energy it's a really small window and we don't even mention this is without this is just if bitcoin finds some new threshold you know add in the fact that bitcoin price the bitcoin price might crash 80 percent after its meteoric rise and you've got so many machines cutting off and profitability changing so drastically that bear markets don't even come close to having this problem. They have the opposite problem, trying to find $0 energy because people have invested so much in the new ASICs. I don't know, this seems like a really simple extrapolation of the clear dominant forces. Like, like there are only a few key factors here. The price of energy, a perfectly open and competitive environment of producing a hash, there is no more perfect, like all you have to do is broadcast. You don't have to be connected to any particular thing. You don't have to register anywhere. If you have a hash, you just, you just get it out there somehow. Nobody even has to know you exist or where you are. It is, there could not be a more open environment for competition. And then lastly, the difficulty adjustment, which levels this all out to equilibrium. The only T taking those dominant factors, leave everything 
all the little noise and the huge price run that we're currently seeing and all the other stuff off the table, level everything out. The only viable long-term energy sources are stranded in non-rival energy sources. They are where they are not being used for something else because the second that gets the becomes the dominant source of energy on the market, the difficulty adjustment will correct and that dominant source of energy will no longer be profitable. And thus the machines cut off. So the fix to this supposed problem is actually just to get the whole world on a Bitcoin standard. Problem solved. <laughs> but he, uh, he talks on the stranded energy. And this is something I think I just mentioned it, but um, that it's a stopgap measure. This is his rebuttal about the stranded energy thing. Um, and this is honestly probably like every, all of his rebuttals, I think, lend themselves some degree of accuracy. Um, but he says that stranded energy is just a stopgap measure. And he says that flatly. And I think it's probably the one thing in the article that I think is absolutely 100% just wrong. Stranded energy will literally be the foundation of mining. Anything else will just be froth. If you play out the economics of the difficulty adjustment, a competitive open market, and the commoditization of ASIC chips, the one single critical factor is the price of energy, which means any time the margin of Bitcoin profitability reaches the nominal, the average Bitcoin, I mean, the average uh, energy price for everyday residential stuff, the difficulty will adjust upward to correct for it, and then the profitability margin will fall, and all of those miners will have to cut off. And he also actually says that eventually you run out of stranded energy sources, which makes me feel like he didn't read Nick's piece very well, because this is the point that I first brought up that just kind of blew my mind, you know, taking us back to Nick's breakdown of the amount of stranded energy out there. So Bitcoin was estimated by the two different sources to be between like 89 and like 123 or something like that. Oh no, 138 terawatt hours. Here it is. Um, uh, so just for simplicity's sake, let's just call it 100 right now, 100 terawatt hours. So 2016, our energy production capacities are basically always going up. Um, China curtailed 40.7 terawatt hours of wind and 11.5 terawatt hours of solar alone. Yunnan alone curtailed 31 terawatt hours worth of hydropower. And in 2016 and 17, China curtailed 100 terawatt hours on average worth of hydro, solar, and wind. So China alone lost economically through away what roughly the entire Bitcoin network consumes annually. Again, just China. Then back to the flared gas issue and... Uh, using his heat rate, I don't the 7 million BTU per milliwatt hours, I don't know what the rough average heat, I assume this is probably an average or fair um, estimate here for the flared gas, is that uh, it could generate 76.9 terawatt hours in 2019 
And that's just the U.S. So just the clean energy curtailed in China could cover all of Bitcoin. And damn near just the vented and flared gas in the U.S. We're not talking about the clean energy curtail in the U.S. at all or the vented flared gas in China at all. Much less the fact that these are not the only two countries on the planet. So saying, quote, you eventually run out of stranded energy sources seems like not that big of a concern when we could probably 30x the entire Bitcoin energy consumption on just stranded energy sources. And honestly, it's probably more than that. But he says that if Bitcoin's price appreciates at anything like the rate of recent years, the simple numerical inadequacy of that approach will make itself known. Therein lies the problem. Like, Bitcoin's price appreciates cyclically. This will either not continue indefinitely, or if it does, it will just stop at hyper-Bitcoinization, in which the value simply corresponds to the value of the economy. Understand, a money cannot be more valuable than the economy it secures. In fact, the money is equal to the value of the economy it secures. That is, that is exactly where its value is derived from. It will axiomatically find equ equilibrium in that regard. It would be impossible for it not to, because that's all money is. It's a, represent it's a representation but it will keep going up in value in the meantime. And in like my conception of what this thing is and how history, I think, plays this out pretty unambiguously, Bitcoin is a hard, sound monetary asset that is independent of any political institution that is emerging in a world of soft, shitty monetary goods for comparison. The end game is that Bitcoin obliterates all of them. History is not like so-so about what happens with those conditions. If Bitcoin survives, I simply think it will. If there aren't any huge arbitrary barriers, political barriers that are able to be, to be put up on the Bitcoin system itself, which right now there are basically none. Bitcoin has no clue about borders. And the internet inherently has that nature and information is becoming far freer and far more mobile and far easier to move and bitcoin will only become more so in that same regard so i see this as being not only unrealistic but highly highly unlikely and in the absence of those barriers bitcoin will simply dominate all monetary assets and really all it has to do is survive all it has to do is continue to grow and it's and it not collapse under the full maturation of its economic truth, of its economic reality. Like the fee structure being the dominant source of security funding, with a very long game on energy expenditure for Bitcoin, or maybe even some crazy alternative use case for all that stranded rivaled energy that somehow like changes the dynamics in an unexpected way. But even, even in that context, if I'm trying to imagine some distant future where Bitcoin does fail under its own economic weight for some reason or another, its value is too great 
for its own settlement to keep up, well, then that would mean that Bitcoin just basically reaches a threshold where the marginal increase in security can't match the marginal increase in value. And so it eventually reaches some sort of cap, some equilibrium where the trade-off no longer is the, the circular reinforced like feedback loop of Bitcoin no longer reinforces the same amount that it grows. In other words, its feedback loop no longer produces a net positive as it goes around the, the cycle. But honestly, I think the problem there would be that Bitcoin security doesn't have enough energy use rather than too much. The problem would never be too much because, again, the value, the value cap halts it. The ability to settle transactions um, and the fees people are willing to pay for it uh, halts it. And then, of course, the difficulty adjustment levels it all out. So saying that, you know, this is a stopgap measure or something and stranded energy is just like a little piece of the puzzle and that the price is just going to keep going up uh, fails to recognize that the price going up is, is the stopgap. Like that's the transitional phase. But this has already gone on like way longer than I meant it to. So um, uh, let's hit the last two pieces because I want to before, before we close this out. So um, the, the other claim that he kind of doubles down on, which I think really doesn't, he kind of he kind of ignores the fundamentals that Nick hits um, and just kind of touches on kind of the cursory details, really. Um, but he talks about the Bitcoin is hogging the chip foundries. So, you know, he, he says again that NVIDIA, you know, changed their GPUs to not, you know, bother gamers or whatever is actually evidence that he was correct instead of wrong that this means nvidia is aware that that was a problem and it's like well yeah but the solution was implemented so i don't know that seems a little weak to me but he says like for example if tsmc um has one percent of their revenue already devoted to bitcoin chips and that this is likely to increase as Bitcoin mining and profitability increases. Well, this means more human labor and resources now has to be devoted to Bitcoin chips instead of other chips. Uh, but, you know, he's kind of changing his argument there because he was saying before that this has been a huge problem. Now he's saying that, okay, well, it will be a huge problem, even though it isn't. And kind of in general, this is a moot point to me. Because first, like Nick said, it's very cyclical. So these sharp increases in the markets are very short-lived. And this is because of the difficulty adjustment, actually. So that answers kind of that it's going to steal everyday energy argument. But it's also the reason we know that these things are very cyclical. So TSMC is never going to devote huge swaths of their business to only ASICs in this way because they'd have to constantly repurpose all of it as the difficulty adjustment comes in and kills the premium every two weeks um and if people are using bitcoin so much more and it's there it, bitcoin is the settlement network that continues to broaden and expand and many others and people are holding more value in bitcoin and people are using more bitcoin they're working in the bitcoin ecosystem well, then you're going to have that many more computers and smartphones and hardware devices and all the rest. All the demand for chips goes up in a Bitcoin economy. 
Um, so there's nothing but an increasing trajectory here for the foundries, period. And the market's going to prioritize the most consistent and fast-growing part of it. Bitcoin chips will be fast. The, the Bitcoin mining will be fast. But it won't be consistent by necessity because of that difficulty adjustment. The normal economy doesn't have a difficulty adjustment if people buy too many smartphones. So I really don't see how it ever leaves tier two, which was Nick's fundamental position, which I feel Noah didn't actually answer in the rebuttal. And then he talks about NVIDIA again, which again is was GPUs, you know, like that's that's not Bitcoin mining. Um, but uh, in, in this, even after reading the rebuttal, I still think Nick's position is just correct and still actually answers the rebuttal. Uh, but the last part um, outside of the stopgap thing that I think was uh, completely wrong, um, the last part is uh, hard to swallow. Um, and rather than trying to sum it up, uh, and it's only two paragraphs, so I'll just read it. And the whole article isn't even that long. Um, so, you know, feel free to read it if you, you know, maybe you think I've really straw manned his uh, rebuttal or something. And, you know, fine. I'm just kind of going off here. Um, but the last part, I think, is the worst part of the rebuttal. Um, so I'll just read these two paragraphs. And, and, and I don't really hold anything against him. I think just anyone who's been in Bitcoin for long enough could see so many glaring problems in these two paragraphs, and you'll understand as I get into it. So, quote, That's why in my original post, I suggested a technological solution. Fork Bitcoin and have a new version that uses a storage technology, and here, just insert, he's talking about storage tech in the sense of like the ongoing cost, like gold in a vault doesn't have this huge ongoing cost. But back to it. It doesn't scale linearly with the price. I suggested proof of stake as one potential alternative because it's one it's the one most people have heard about. Nick disparages proof of stake on ideological grounds. It's more centralized than proof of work. He also disparages other alternatives such as Gridcoin, which uses proof of work calculations for other useful purposes on similar ideological grounds. I have no doubt that the same ideological opposition would apply to other alternatives that people have suggested, such as directed acyclic graphs or second-layer solutions. And indeed, if you really care about the ideology of cryptocurrency, this is a big drawback. But as resource use spirals and constraints multiply, it might be necessary to compromise on ideology. Again, to reiterate, this is all about the future. Lack of economies of scale in storage of an asset represents a real technological weakness, and there are clear signs that local governments and chip producers are already seeing the writing on the wall. If Bitcoin's price continues to skyrocket, as all Bitcoin holders should want it to, then the day is not too far distant when the inherent resource intensiveness of Bitcoin will become a severe problem. So it pays to think now about what to do if and when this happens. End quote. Oh boy. So... There's a lot wrong in this two paragraphs. And um, first, I will say, uh, go ahead and fork Bitcoin. Um, you're you're kind of missing the point. There have been thousands of forks of Bitcoin, and they aren't as secure, and they aren't as valuable on the market, specifically because of it. Bitcoin is an organism. Just because a couple of people think, oh, I've got a better storage technology, and they fork Bitcoin doesn't mean anything. And so I don't know 
in what world he thinks that would just happen? Like, like it does happen. It happens all the time. I mean, he literally pointed out examples. Gridcoin. Who's going to use Gridcoin? But here's the big thing. Here's the big thing that I think is him avoiding the argument is he's not actually arguing the point. Uh, he is simply trying to make it seem as if there is no point to argue is that this is an ideological problem, that he he's, uh, disparages proof of stake on ideological grounds. And that's like saying we disparage, you know, square wings on ideological grounds. No, it's because square wings don't fly. It has to be a certain way to actually pick people up and take them into the air safely. Proof of stake simply does not do what proof of work does. Back to what I was saying earlier that I think was a really key point is that his, his settlements that he wants, the, the analogy that he used of gold in a vault is fake settlement. It is not a real objective cost. It is pretend. And that is what I mean when Bitcoin offers something real that you can only get for pretend in any other sense. Proof of stake is again pretend. It's borrowed. Your settlement assurances have no real cost. The head staker who has 80% of the coins can rewrite the entire history of your coin all the way back to the Genesis block. And not only that, they can do it a million times all at once before the next block comes in because it's a fake cost. It is trying to get a free lunch. It is something from nothing. It is not an ideological ground on which one would disparage proof of stake or grid coin or whatever. It is on logical engineering grounds. It is on the basis of reality and the real cost involved. There is no free lunch. It is not on ideological grounds that I say the big purple monster with tentacles that you believe exists doesn't exist. It actually just doesn't exist. And you can say you don't have to argue or prove about your big purple tentacled monster because I'm ideologically opposed to it. But nonetheless, it doesn't actually exist. And then when we're talking about something that uses proof of work calculations for some other useful purpose, well, then that's not, it's not able to provide security because now it actually has to compete with some other profitable means in order to, like, why is that, why is that better? That just, again, means that you don't actually have any settlement assurances because whatever this other useful purpose is can now just be turned and redirected towards, uh, towards Bitcoin and removing its settlement assurances. And still, you can use those chips or that computing power to do something else later. You don't have to secure Bitcoin, who cares? I'll destroy Bitcoin with all of my chips and then I'll keep going and doing this other useful purpose. One of the key things about Bitcoin and why it is so secure and why its settlement assurances are so profound is that you can't do anything else with SHA-256 except proof of work. So yes, we would have the same real opposition to these other solutions, but it is not ideological. Any more than saying bleeding out your patient is healthy for them or is going to cure them of their disease. You might not understand it, but that doesn't make it ideological. And then what's funny is he actually mentions second layer solutions, which are exponentially increasing 
the very efficiency he's complaining about. We do have second layer solutions. That's exactly how Bitcoin intends to scale. Its block size doesn't go up. Lightning Network is the solution to this problem. It is how you get exponentially more value settlement and more payments and more productive good. The thing that Bitcoin produces, settlement, to as many people in as large a scale as possible, Lightning Network, Liquid, Sidechains, all of these other tools are exactly how you do that so that Bitcoin can actually provide exponentially more of its very product, the settlement assurances, per unit of energy it expends. So actually, for a second time, his criticism is something that Bitcoin is already solving and something that is natural to how this protocol has to unfold in the future. And remarkably, it does this while still providing real assurances, real ownership, defended by an objective cost rather than a pretend one which he insists is equal apparently in his imagination so that one doesn't do it for me um i i will say i mean i kind of I might have gotten a little accusatory uh, there at the end but um i enjoyed noah's article and nick's article um and it was kind of cool to see noah rebut without getting all nasty and everything so props to him uh maybe maybe he actually listens to this who knows no hard feelings if he does and of course a huge thank you to nick carter uh, for always being the front line for this sort of stuff and always writing amazing pieces um uh, with that a uh, huge thank you to swan bitcoin uh for having the best bitcoin automatic savings plan out there and the bitbox o2 hardware wallet for securing your keys and settled straight to you, not in some gold vault at some bank defended by a guard and somebody promised it to you. Bitbox02, you are the owner. So thank you to those two amazing sponsors, Swan Bitcoin and Bitbox. Check them out at guyswan.com. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We got some other great reads and episodes coming this week, so don't miss it. This is Bitcoin Audible, and I'm Guy Swan. And until next time... Take it easy. This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.